But we are going to jump into Genesis chapter 12 and 13. It's kind of the beginning of the story of a man named Abram, who would later on be named Abraham, but sometimes we forget that his name got changed down the line. Down the line. God gave him a new name, but that doesn't happen yet. So we're dealing with Abram and learning about his family and his background a little bit today. And we're going to try and cover in a few of the, of the missing details out of chapter 11 and some of the verses that we're skipping over in chapter 13 as well. So if you read it all, I always think of the book of Genesis is probably the easiest book of the Bible to read through. It really is a narrative. It's a story. As we get into these specific people, and how God has dealt with the world and with these people throughout history. From the very beginning, we saw the story of Adam and Eve. We saw the fall. We saw how God dealt with Cain and the, and the first murderer. And we've seen how God dealt with the people as they gathered together and, and uh, tried to uh, unify in rebellion against what God had given them. And they tried to gather instead of scatter and how God scattered them through the division of language at the Tower of Babel. We also saw in that the founding of Babylon. And if you remember from our study of the books of kings, Babylon is the nation that eventually comes, and God uses them to bring his judgment on his people, Israel. But here we're way back at the beginning of the story, and the very first mention of the promised land is in these chapters. So there's some really important details of the story of redemption. There's important details of the story of the history of Israel. For Israel is another name for Jacob, and that was Abraham's grandson, right? So here we are, and if you read through all of chapter 11, you get the entire genealogy of Shem, who was Noah's son, and all the way down to this man named Abram that we're going to talk about today. So it really is fascinating. If you like prequels, this is the prequel of all prequels. All the way back to where Abram came from, the patriarch of the patriarchs, if you will. Um, the grandfather, great-grandfather of all of Israel's 12 sons. We sometimes call them the patriarchs. But he's the great-granddaddy of them all. And we all know the great-granddaddy gets all the credit, right? I thought in a room full of grandparents I would get more out of that. <laughs> I really did. But that's okay. That's all right. Y'all keep sipping that coffee and wake up. We're going to take a look at uh, four things out of two things here. Basically, in chapter 12, we're looking at God calls and blesses Abraham. We, okay, I've even seen entire... You know, lessons that people have made out of what it means to accept God's call, to seek God's will out of the story with Abraham. Unfortunately, we don't all have the benefit of the direct communication from God that Abraham, Abraham had. But we'll see that. And we're going to see an, another blessing given in chapter 13. And we're going to notice God's going to speak to Abraham several times. And each time he kind of builds on what he's already told him. And all of these appearances with Abram, later Abraham, we might call that 
Abrahamic covenant, if you want to turn his name into an adjective. And we could compare that to the covenant of Noah. Noah was given a fresh start on the earth, but Abram is given very specific promises that are exclusive to him. The, the blessing of Noah, that we get to live, the rainbow is for everybody. We don't have to freak out when the heavy rains come like they do sometimes in our state. We know that God's not going to destroy the world with weather. He's going to reserve for that time of judgment where all depends on our relationship with Christ. But here we have some very specific promises made to Abram through which eventually the Messiah will arrive who will save us. Jesus, who's represented by that Ark of Noah, his lineage, as we know, comes not only through Noah, but through Abram. And God is setting the table for the redemption he knows we desperately need. He knows that on our own, God would just have to wipe us out again. We need a way to be forgiven of our sins, and we need a way to be made right with God. And as Noah found favor with the Lord, we see Abram being an instrument of God's favor as well. We'll talk about that as we get into the promises that God makes to Abram as you talk about it. As God calls Abram, think about what part of this is Abram's responsibility and what part of it is God's responsibility. If you ever enter into a business agreement or a contract with somebody, there's often responsibility on both sides. But, um, you know, if I'm going to go out shopping for a car, well, you know, I don't know if there's enough in my bank account to just buy a car. They're expensive these days. If I want a new car, not a used car, I might need some help. I might need somebody with some resources that can provide the resources to buy the car and maybe I pay them back. Maybe I need some kind of agreement. And when it comes to salvation, we don't have any righteousness of our own. So we need someone to step in who can provide the things we don't have. And we see God here as he enters into this covenant with Abram. There's things that Abram can do. There's things that God alone can do. And we see how it all comes together here. There's another thing here that we see separation as part of our story today. So think about it. If we're going to follow God's call, do we need to separate from some things and some people? Because we do see that as part of our story today. And a third question to be thinking about, what's an appropriate response? When God gives us promises and God gives us blessings and we'll see that at the end of our story so we'll leave that for now but be thinking about that god moves and we respond so out of these two things i'm going to talk briefly about five little things as we go a very simple outline we're going to fill out today we're going to see a nation a journey some ways a land and a response at the very end, as I already mentioned, all right? So that is coming up. Now, let's get a little bit of background and to kind of limit the number of cross-references today, I'm gonna to use some of my cross-references up uh, just to fill in the background text that we've skipped over today. We we're gonna start as our material from LifeWay suggests in chapter 12, verse one. Let's back up just a little bit and see those last verses of chapter 11, because this context is important. So if you have your Bible, you can open up to Genesis 11, 
And we're going to pick up in verse 27 hit a couple of things here. It's one of those things where there's some details of the story we're not absolutely sure of. I have kind of settled my opinion of the matter, but I'm not 100% confident on a few of these things. But here's what we know. The story, remember that in chapter 11, we go all the way from Seth all the way down to Terah. I got my names right, don't I? I think so. So, wait, now I'm thinking of Adam's son. Am I? Yes, you am. Shem. I think I said it right earlier, and I mixed up that time. Seth and Shem. Who made those names so similar? <laughs> All right. So Shem is the son of Noah. We have his lineology in chapter 11. And here we pick up and all the way down to Terah. So several generations down. And here's the family records of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Now, those are not necessarily in chronological order. There's a lot of reason to believe that actually Haran was the oldest of the three brothers. Um, Haran died in his native land in Ur of the Chaldeans during his father's Terah's lifetime. And we jump down to verse 31. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, and his daughter-in-law Sarai. And his son, his son Abram's wife, and they set out together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Now, there's two Harans or Harans here. One is the name of Abram's probably older brother. Um, we think that not only because he was the one who died first, uh, but also because. Um, it turns out, if you look at one of these verses, that his brother Nahor married Haran's daughter. So again, it kind of sets it up to make us think Haran was the oldest. But when we talk about they came to Haran, that was a place, not a person. So they go to this town where they named it after their brother, and the names just happen to be similar. That's where they settled. But I want you to notice they're already, and it's was Terah who seems to have taken the initiative here, they are already on a journey to the land of Canaan. Now, uh, this is where I suddenly stop and check and see if you have a map of your book, and you do. Excellent. So if you have your book with you, look at the back cover, and you can kind of see, I was going to draw a triangle on the board, but you really don't want to see my drawing skills. I already have to subject my master's to that. The journey they're taking here is from the lower right corner of the map, a town called Ur. Well, I should call it a city. It wasn't just a town. And they're following this path northwest. And at the very top of that triangle, we see that's where Haran was. And then from there, it's a journey mainly southwest, all the way down to the land of Canaan, and if you go down near the bottom, you may see some really familiar looking cities, places like Tyre on the coast, and then places that we would think of as cities of Israel that were already present, at least the location specified here, Bethel, Hebron, which we're going to see in our story today, Jerusalem was there, of course not occupied by Jews at this time, occupied by other peoples, the Canaanites. So, and of course, you see, if you see, the arrow goes all the way down, and you get down to the Sinai Peninsula, which is part of the story if you read some of the verses in between, because 
in the verses we skip over, Abram is going to go westward all the way to Egypt and come back to the land of Canaan. So this is the progression. And so after Abram's brother dies, they make the trip all the way up to the top of the map because you couldn't really cut through the desert. And we see that throughout Israel's history, that everybody kind of goes northwest following the Euphrates in the fertile land where people can actually live. And then down the coast, where obviously you also have a very fertile area. So that's why they kind of skip that mountainous, uh, desolate area on what we would call it nowadays called a lot of that. Let's see, would that be the Saudi Arabia area? And is that where Gaza Strip is now? The Gaza Strip is on the coast. The Gaza Strip is, is in what we would, in this map, would be the land of Canaan. Yeah. And, and that's part of where they went. Yeah, they were headed there. The Philistines, remember, they never got driven out of the promised land. So they're in the land of Canaan along with Israel and right next to each other and still causing trouble today, aren't they? So that's what we see there. All right, so that's your background of the journey that's described here. And, of course, some of the key events are we have Abram's brother dying, but his brother already had a son named Lot. So Abram is Lot's uncle, and he brings him along and kind of raises Lot as his own. Abram doesn't have any children of his own. That's a big part of the story, as you might recall. So here they are, Abram, his wife, Sarai. Both of them are going to get a new name, as we know. She'll be called Sarah someday. Abram's father, Terah, and his nephew, Lot. All right, so the four of them go out on this journey. So as we read the events in Genesis 12, it seems to me that it, once again, it's basically a flashback that God might have already called Abram in chapter 11, and we just hear about it in chapter 12. Now, some people think God made two separate calls to Abram, once at the beginning and another one after his father, Terah, dies. And some people think that Terah, just on his own, just happened to somehow sense what how God was leading and brought them in the right direction and got them halfway to Canaan. And then appear, God appears in chapter 12 and calls Abram to finish the journey and come to the land of Canaan. I, I kind of favor that Abram actually gets the call while um, somewhere between verse 30 and verse 31. So I think that's when it actually happens. But it's hard to be sure especially with the way that Jewish people wrote things, and they didn't even write their sons in order oldest to least. So there's some details that are kind of murky here, but that's our background. That's our situation. Terah lived 205 years. People are still living pretty long, but life expectancy is on a steep decline from the flood to the days of Abraham. And by the time we get to the days of Jacob, people are not living much past 100 anymore but we still have pretty long lifespans let's get into our focus verse today let's look at verse one through three and we see the lord said to abram go from your land your relatives and your father's house to the land that i will show you i will make you into a great nation i will bless you i will make your name great and you will be a blessing i will bless those who bless you I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now, is there an expiration date on this promise here that God's making? 
Then if I see good through 1, 1, 500 BC or anything like that. Now, you might want to check for those dates on your milk and on your bread and stuff when you get home. But this is a promise that is timeless. As long as there is an earth, there is this nation of Abram's descendants, and God is giving a blessing to this family ongoing. So something to keep in mind, any nation, including ours, God is paying attention to how we treat the chosen people, the descendants of Abram, specifically descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Jews. So there's this, this blessing that's strong. Now, notice in verse 1, God is saying, leave your relatives. Now, that could apply, and that's part of the, the vagueness here. It could apply if they were in Ur, and it could apply if they were in um, the Haran. Yeah, I'm not looking at it. I'm not doing too good with words today, am I? Names are, are I'm struggling here a little bit. The Haran, the city. If you look at the Hebrew, they're actually different. One of them has like a K in front of the H, and, and you can tell them apart if you really, the way they translated it, when they translated the Greek, they made the names separate. But yeah, both of those places are considered to be, you know, in that land of the Chaldeans. All right? Both of those are in the Fertile Crescent. They're just the opposite ends, right? One's way down in the, in the southeast. And one's way up in, in, in the, the top of the map. But they're both could be considered that land. So regardless of whether God was speaking when he was still in Ur or whether he was in Haran, God has some place for him to go. And he said, I need you to leave. Now, some people think part of the reason that Abram needed to leave is because his people were into idolatry. They were worshiping false gods. Idolatry was already a thing. We're several generations away from the flood when God had saved Noah and his family. And already false worship has sprung up in the world. Okay? And it's several hundred years later. But we have this tendency, you know, to forget the true God and worship false gods. Although that may not alone have been the reason that God was calling him. Because in the land of Canaan, there's also people who are worshiping false gods. Um, but Abram had a relationship with the true God, and he worshiped the true God of the universe and has this relationship, enough of a relationship that God speaks to him directly and gives him this amazing call. And notice what God promises to him. He says, you get up and go. This was Abram's responsibility. He had to obey this call, and it wasn't going to be easy, leaving the familiar into the unfamiliar. And if we study like Hebrews chapter 11, we see Abram didn't really know exactly where he was going. He had never been to the land of Canaan before, and he's going to dwell there as a stranger, isn't he? He's not going to conquer, take over, or move in. We're going to see him just as a sojourner. But God says you need to do that. And then we see what God's going to do. I'm going to make you a great nation. Now, great nation, okay? That, think about how many millions of Jews there are in the world, and you get the idea of what God was talking about. As we see in later promises, God talks about them being as numerous as the sand of this, on the seashore. So now this was a remarkable thing for God to say, because Abram doesn't have any children, and he's not a spring chicken either. He's 75 years old at this point, and his wife is barren. So he has a nephew, he doesn't have a son, that's all part of the story that we're all very familiar with, some of us. 
But that's the situation. And God said, I'm going to make you into a great nation. How's he going to do that? I don't know. Is he going to have children? Is God going to clone Abraham and make all? You know, what's, what, how, is God going to do some kind of miracle? What? But the promise is, Abraham, Abraham didn't know how it was going to unfold. But God said, I'm going to make you into a great nation. We have the hindsight to see God did that. But understand from his perspective, he wasn't quite sure how God was going to pull that off. And we see that being part of the story. Now, I will make your name great. So not only is it going to be a nation, but a great reputation, okay? That this people is going to be famous, all right? Think about today. Everybody knows who the Jews are, right? For various reasons. So it's a notable people and a great people that God's going to make. I will bless you and curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And there's the warning there that God is going to have a personal stake in this people, okay? And I can relate to that today, that we as believers... We are God's children. We're part of his family. Now, you know what would happen growing up. Siblings can be the worst, right? Siblings can treat each other so bad until somebody from outside the family picks on anybody inside the family. And then what happens? Now, my dad was the oldest brother. And so my uncle told me a story about you know, he wasn't sure what to think about his dad. He was kind of a pain sometimes and, and hard to get along with. My my brothers, they did not get along very well. But this one day when somebody at school was picking on my uncle and followed him home, and my dad came out the door and addressed that young man who was younger than my dad, and suddenly my dad turned into my uncle's hero because he stood up for him, and he realized, my brother must be paying as he is got my back. Well, all the better here, it's not just that the brothers and Abram's family are going to stick up for each other, but we see God is the one saying, if anybody blesses you, I'm going to bless them. If anybody's going to be in my corner, I would love for that to be the God of the universe. How about you? And as believers, as part of God's family, that's the way it is, right? We, have, we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior, who's coming out of all this that we're going to talk about, we're talking about, we have him in our corner. He's going to come back on a white horse, and he's going to win the day as the story closes in the book of Revelation. And we have him in our corner. We pray to him and our prayers are heard. So although we may find that sometimes that we face persecution and difficulty and mistreatment in this life, we have God in our corner. We're going to be okay. He's going to rescue us. He's going to preserve us. And we see that in the story of the Jews time after time, right? The Egyptians mistreat the Jews. And what does God do? He brings them out. And he sends the plagues against Pharaoh. He sends Moses to lead them. Right? So time after time, we know that God rescues and protects and delivers his people. And here is the promise that this is going to happen long before it ever happens. God makes the promise. And when God makes a promise, you can bank on it. God's always going to hold up his end of the deal, isn't he? Isn't he? Yeah. All right, everybody's still awake. That's good. Yes. <laughs> it's always good to have a check. Everybody's still alive. Everybody's still breathing. Everybody's still awake. Okay, we need, you know, we need to bring in a coffee pot next week. We'll find out. All right, so there it is. So what a precious promise. The promise of all promises, right? The promise to Noah was, I'm not going to flood you anymore, which is a relief. It's a great promise. 
But now things are getting personal. God said, I'm going to have a people, and I'm going to watch over them, and I'm going to have their back, and I'm going to deliver and rescue them anytime they need it. And anybody bullies them, I'm going to address that. So this is a very personal promise that Abram gets, and everybody's in on this. You have to be part of Abram's family to receive this promise. And there's parallels to us today. But here we're talking about the patriarch of all the Israelites. And so that's what we see. Now, one other verse to throw out here, and this is where we some, some of the details, oddly enough, get filled in in the New Testament. We look in the book of Acts. Um, we're going to be studying through for a while. As it turns out, in our morning services, if you look at Acts chapter 7, there was a man named Stephen. He was a deacon, and he was the first martyr. And he is brought before the Jewish Sanhedrin, that same council that sent Jesus uh, to die on the cross and handed him over to the Romans. And here's this believer, post-resurrection, Stephen, and he goes into kind of a history lesson as the beginning of his defense. And just notice what he says here in verse 2 through 4 of chapter 7. Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. That's that entire region where the Euphrates River goes and runs diagonally on our map. Before he lived in Haran. So according to Stephen, that means chapter 12 happened in the middle of that story and not at the end of the story in chapter 11. So that's where I come to the conclusion that God actually called Abram before they ever left Ur. They were actually, but again, it's Mesopotamius, but it said before he lived in Haran. So he appeared to him either on the way up to Haran or while they were still at the very beginning where they grew up in Ur. That's what it sounds like based on what Stephen said. And Stephen here is speaking through the Holy Spirit. So he either is relying on the Jewish um, study that they knew more of, had kind of filled in some details of the story, or it's just simply the Holy Spirit speaking and telling us maybe something that Stephen didn't even know. But the author of the book knows what's going on in the story, doesn't he? Mm -hmm. So that fills in a little bit of detail. Not a huge issue, but I thought it was interesting trying to figure out, trying to put all the pieces of the puzzle together and when all this happened. And then he went, you see in verse 4, out from the land of, of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there at the top of the map and they go southwest all the way down to Canaan. So Stephen here, helping us fill in some of the gaps that are not necessarily spelled out in the Genesis account that Moses wrote down. And that's how it all seems to fit together. So I thought that was interesting. Once again, remember the Old and New Testament are all woven together as part of one story, aren't they? Isn't that nice? So, one more thing. Book of Galatians that our pastor had mentioned recently. And here we are in Galatians chapter 3. And let's tie it all the way in. Are we in on the promises of Abram, even though we are not Jewish? We're Gentiles, most of us here today. So, look at what it says here in verse 8. And the scripture... Foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, And you, to all the nations, be blessed. So what God said to Abram, back here in verse 3, All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Paul says in Galatians 3.8 that 
God was preaching the gospel in advance. That this blessing was not just that God was going to be nice to the Jews, not just that God was going to protect and rescue the Jews, but that God was going to send us the Messiah, the Savior in whom we have believed and been forgiven if we are people of faith. And notice what Paul said in verse 9. So that those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. If you are blessed by God, if you count yourself part of God's family and under God's blessings, you can thank Abram for that. Because it's his blessing that we're sharing in. So don't think the book of Genesis has nothing to do with the gospel. The book of Genesis is the gospel. It's where it starts. It's not just a dry history book about people. It's about a God who so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's because the God who flooded the world saw our need for forgiveness. And he begins that scarlet thread of redemption right here, not just in saving Noah, but now the promise is made to Abram, who would later be Abraham. So, a preeminent nation. God says, I'm going to make you a great nation, and I'm going to bless you. And you're going to be a, a renowned nation, and you're also going to be the nation from which salvation comes to the entire world, as we've just talked about it. So that's the first thing God promises to him in verses 1 through 3. That's really a lot of what we're going to talk about today. We're going to continue the journey, and we're going to see a few other things we get to 13 as God expounds on his promise and his blessing. But a preeminent nation is what we see. God promises that. God calls Abram, you're going to be a great nation. Now come and do what I say and go where I tell you. And Abram said, yes. Let's look at verse 4 through 5. So Abram went, as the Lord told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated, and all the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. So from the top of the map, the very top of, of the Arabian Peninsula, down the coast they go to the land of Canaan. And we already talked about who's with him. At this point, since Terah died in Haran, he didn't make the journey with them. It's just, the, but we can't really say it's just the three of them. You can see it was really a rather, rather large troop because Abram and Lot were very well to do. In fact, some of what we skip over in chapters 12 and 13 is they had so much stuff and so many servants and so much livestock that eventually it became difficult for Abram and Lot to settle in the same area. And we see them having to separate later in the story. But you get it here in verse 5. God was already blessing them. They were well-to-do, and they have a lot of resources. Now, we don't count our resources in terms of heads of cattle and how many sheep are on the hill. All right? We, we, tend to, we tend to look at numbers on a bank statement to figure out how much we have nowadays in these days of liquid wealth. Or maybe we look at our house and car that we've invested in. But understand that Abram had a lot of resources. God was already blessing him. And why was God blessing him? I think we see it in verse 4. God said, go. So Abram went. Do you think there's a connection 
between our obedience and God's willingness to bless us? Do we see in the Bible God choosing to bless people who later is shown have a heart to obey him? Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was willing to build the ark. Who do we see in the Old Testament stories that God chooses to bless? People like David, who had a heart after God. And we see here in Abram. God, now Abram wasn't perfect. He makes a lot of mistakes in this story. He goes, he, it was a family land. He's going to go to Egypt. He's going to lie and say Sarah's his sister, which is technically true because she's like a half-sister. Or, you know, they're just like loosely related. This is early on in the genealogy, and it's not as much of a concern about marrying someone you're related to and some kind of a birth defect, you know, uh, plaguing your children. The, the line of humanity is still pretty pure at this point. And there's not as much concern about it. But Sarah was related to him. He, he didn't outright lie, but he was certainly deceptive about who she was. He, didn't, he actually doesn't admit that she's his wife because she's beautiful. He thinks the Egyptians are going to kill him because of her. And so rather than trusting in God, he trusts in his own scheme. And it leaves us in trouble. Eventually they come back uh, when we can pick up the story in chapter 13. But Abraham didn't necessarily get everything right. But Abraham was willing to obey God, and that set him apart, okay? God is not always, God wants perfection, but what God really wants is a heart that's at least willing to listen and obey. Even if we don't get everything right, you look at David's story, he made mistakes. But do we have a heart that's willing to obey God? And that seems to be a criteria that God is looking for when he chooses to call someone and bless them. Not perfection. We don't have any right to demand that of everybody. That's why Jesus had to come and die on the cross. But do you have a heart that's willing to follow God? And when God says go, do you get up and go? We say, Abraham, at least doing that much, don't you? He was willing to do it into the unfamiliar, out of faith, trusting God. And when we do that, we also show ourselves to be the true children of Abraham. So they set out. A patriarch's journey. He completes the journey and makes his way as a stranger to the land of Canaan. The promise of being a preeminent nation, and yet here he is, just a, not a completely lonely wanderer, because he's got his family and he's got all these servants, and <coughs> but certainly as a stranger in the land. And then we get to this, what we were talking about, that there's a parting of ways. And a lot of that is early on in chapter 13. And we'll get to that right now. Let's go ahead and go a little earlier than our focus verses, starting with verse 7 through 9, just to get that story we were talking about earlier, that Abram and Lot, um, there's this strife, as you see in verse 7, between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock, and also the Canaanites and Perizzites were dwelling in the land. So there's a lot of conflict. They're strangers, and sometimes they dig a well, and the Canaanites claim it, and all these things we see throughout the story. Of, of you know, let's think about it. Have you ever felt like you were a visitor and you kind of wore out your welcome? That you have, um, you know, maybe you stayed too long at the end of us, you know, and things are, are getting rough. What do they say about company? They're like, 
It's like fish starts to sink after three days, you know. So, you know, there's all these things, but also Lot and Abram, as much as they loved each other, there was some tension there. And then their servants are getting in arguments, you know, about, you know, where their, you know, animals are going to graze. And I just realized, you know what, this land isn't, well, kid, this town isn't big enough for the both of us. So they realize it's time to separate. And uh, there's a whole story there. We're not going to read over all of it. But Abraham, he says, look, let's, I don't want to fight with you. Look at the whole land. And you pick the part you want to dwell in, and I'll go the other direction, and we'll separate so there's plenty of grazing land for all of our livestock. And that's the decision that they make there in verse 9. So that leads us to the story. If you read over verse 10, Lot fixes his eyes on the beautiful plains of Sodom and Gomorrah. Can you imagine the travel brochures? Come to Sodom and Gomorrah, the land of luxury. And he sees it. It looks beautiful. And he goes there, but we see in verse 11. Let's just pick up the story there. So Lot chose the entire plain of the Jordan for himself. Lot journeyed eastward, and they separated from each other. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, but Lot lived in the cities on the plain and set up his tent near Sodom. And the only verse that we're going to discuss today about the state of that region, now the men of Sodom were evil, sinning immensely against the Lord. Looked beautiful then. Wasn't going to look too beautiful by the end of the book of Genesis. It's going to be kind of hot and dry. It's going to get destroyed because God's going to judge them for their sin. So Lot's choice, it looked good from a distance, but it wasn't really a great place to raise a family as it turned out. But they separate. And at this point, we see God's going to speak to Lot again. Again, this idea of separation. God has called Abram and his family out of the land of the Chaldeans. He's called them now to go south from Haran to the land of Canaan. And now Abram has separated from Lot out of necessity. So now it's just Abram and Sarah. And God now refines the call. We're going to see God, you know, not everybody's God's people. There are certain promises that only apply to God's people. And we're going to see, even in Abram's family, not all of Abram's descendants are going to get out on the promises. Remember, the Bible says that God loved Jacob, but he hated Esau. Those are Abram's grandchildren. So not everybody gets in on God's promises. But we do have a parting of the ways. Any stories of the New Testament come to mind about things that got parted? How about the sheep and the goats when Jesus told that parable? Yeah. Which group are you in? Are you right with God? And are you a person of faith? Then you're in on the promises. But if you're not, or if your neighbors are not, they're outside the promises. And it's such an important thing. So it was a parting of the ways. Lot is facing a world of trouble now. Abram, let's see what's next for him as God speaks to him in verse 14. And we have a preeminent nation. We have a patriarch's journey, a parting the ways. And God is about to speak to Abram about what kind of land. I bet you can guess this one. Promise. The promised land. There's a promised land. Let's read about it in verse 14. 
So here we see after Lot had separated from him. The Lord said to Abram, look from the place where you are, look north and south and east and west, for I will give you and your offspring forever all the land that you see. I will make your offspring like the, wow, like the dust of the earth, like we talked about earlier. So if anyone can count the dust of the earth, then your offspring could be counted. Get up and walk around the land through its length and width, for I will give it to you. This is the promise, and this is why even today that Israel has a God-given right to the Holy Land. God promised it to them, and there's no expiration date. The only time that expires is when God actually destroys the world in fire and makes a new heaven and earth. So until then, that is their land. And that is why we see Israel, regardless of whatever happens to them, coming back to the Holy Land, because God gave it to them. All right, what else can we say about this promise here? Again, it was kind of a perplexing promise, because God's talking about not just making you into a great nation. He's talking about offspring. Abram doesn't have any offspring. He had a nephew, and he could send him away. It's just him and Sarah, and they're not getting any younger. But God says that he's going to make a way for it to happen, as we know. So God blessed him after separation. And again, if God's not blessing you, maybe separating from certain people or out of certain activities, staying away from Sodom and out of sin, that's probably an important precursor. If you want God to bless you, you might want to seek holy life. God's not going to use an unclean instrument just like you wouldn't in your kitchen. God promises that entire land, everything you could see. This reminds me of when Moses, right before they go into the promised land, he wasn't allowed to enter, but he, remember God called him up to a mountain. He looked all around. He got to see it from afar. Well, Abram's living in it, but he's not conquering it at this point. But God is good. God's going to make good on his promise. It's going to be hundreds of years before we get to the days of, Mo of Moses and the days of Joshua. But God did come through on that promise. And God's going to provide Abram an heir. At some point, at some point, there's going to be a baby Isaac. But that's a story for another day. Let's take a look at Joshua 21. I thought this would be a good uh, thing to look at before we come back and look at verse 18. Because these are just very triumphant verses. Let's skip ahead to the end of this phase of the story. God promised them a land, but guess what? It's filled with enemies. It's filled with Canaanites. They weren't that much better than the Sodomites. And they, um, it takes a long time. We're at the end of the book of Joshua. So we have Abram turns into Abraham. We have Isaac. We have Jacob. We have Jacob's 12 sons, which become the tribes of Israel. They go to Egypt. Joseph is second in command in Egypt during a famine, you might remember. They do well, but Pharaoh comes along who doesn't know anything about Joseph. Israelites are mistreated. Moses is called, who's part Egyptian. His mom was an Egyptian princess. Leads them out of the land. They wander the wilderness for 40 years, and then it becomes time for Joshua to succeed Moses. And what do they do? They finally go obey God, he says go, and they went, and they conquered the promised land, and at the end of the book of Joshua, here's what we read. 
Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give their fathers. And they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them. For the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands, not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed, all came to pass. This is what happens when God makes you and me a promise. When God promised to Abram, I'm going to give you this land to your descendants. God gave him descendants. And then he gave him victory, and he gave him what he promised him. How much more so for us as believers, when God has promised to bring us safe to heaven, when God has promised that we're going to walk on streets of gold, when God has promised to wipe away every tear from our eyes, when he has promised victory over death, how much more can we trust the God who made these promises to Abram to fulfill every promise that he has made for us in the scriptures. That is the God who has promised us as people of faith. And we cling to those precious promises, and we rely on those precious promises because God is faithful. And even though we may be imperfect at times, we follow a God who is always perfect. And he fulfills every word of his good promises. Don't you dare forget. No matter how low you feel, no matter how hard life can get at times, remember that all of God's promises are true and reliable and as sure as tomorrow's sunrise. Even more so. Because someday that sun will fail, but God's promises will never fail. Let that encourage you today. It all begins there. There's a promised land. The Jews are still there. It ain't been easy. There's war and conflict and fighting. But they're there because God said they would be there. And they're going to continue to be there because of that. So that takes us to verse 18. What can we do in response to so great promises? Well, here's what Abram did. He moved his tent. He went to live in a spot near the Oaks of Mamre at Hebron. Again, that's a city that comes up time and time again in the story of Israel. It was in the land of Judah. If you go to the later days, and the days of David and later, you see a lot going on in Hebron, where he built an altar to the Lord. You know what Abram did in response to all these promises? Now, he was obedient. He followed God's instructions that perhaps qualified him to be the kind of person God would choose to bless. He didn't earn those promises. Those far beyond anything he could earn. And he recognized that. And his response was to worship. And he built him an old-time altar with, and it would later be specified that God did not accept altars that were made with graven tools. You would just collect a bunch of rocks and make it into a kind of a little rock bed and you would worship God there. But he built somewhat of an enduring structure there at the Oaks of Mamre. Even though he didn't own the land, we're going to find later on, he's going to go a little bit east of there. He's going to buy his burial plot. And that's where 
even Joseph's bones are going to be uh, deposited when he returned from Egypt, as I recall. But he built an altar to the Lord. Can you agree with me that with all that God has promised us, far beyond what we can ever merit or deserve, that worship is the appropriate response? We are children of faith like Abraham, and we should worship all that God has provided for us, all of our hope from heaven. Abram gives a pretty good response, and we should follow his example. All the gospel starts right here. Genesis chapter 12 and 13. Aren't you glad that God sent us the Savior to forgive us for our sin, that we could be in on those blessings? All right. We can expect God to do great things. We might feel like we don't have the resources or the energy or the strength. But we can depend on his power. We just need to trust him. He blesses us, and like Abraham, should we pass on our blessing to others? Blessing for all nations, that's our Lord Jesus. Let's bless others as we encounter them. Demonstrate your faith by obeying God's instructions. It's part of the example of Abraham we can follow. And sometimes you got to leave the conflicts and distractions behind. Sometimes you got to leave Lot on the other side of the Jordan River. So you can hear what God wants to say to you. And you can worship him and hear his voice. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your precious promises, for your grace poured out, for promises that we can never accomplish on our own. We cannot build our way up to heaven. That was the people at the Tower of Babel. You had to come down and make a way for us to be right with you, for us to live with you forever, for our sins to be forgiven, for a Savior to die in our place so that we, though imperfect, could be made right with you. And we can only stand in awe at the salvation that you worked throughout all of these historical events to bring us. And here we are, just sitting at the table, enjoying your blessings. And we can never pay you back for all you've done and all you do and all you will do for us. All we can do is gather and worship you today. So may you receive our worship and may we be encouraged that you are the promise giver and that you have called us to blessing and we sit at your table blessed through faith in Jesus Christ, our Savior, and no merit of our own. May you be glorified today. Thank you for this encouragement and the lessons here in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Thank you. Amen. Amen.